Hey folks, welcome to Your Basket is Empty, the space where I sit down with the world's most interesting brands and digital agencies to unpack where they're at, where they're going, and how they're navigating the consumer landscape. I'm your host, Tim. So I'm changing up the format a bit for the rest of the year. I'm moving from a season-based schedule to weekly episodes. This will continue into next year also. I really appreciate you tuning in. So if you've got any feedback, you can hit me up at timatyourbasketisempty.com. On this episode, I'm chatting with Gary Penn. Gary is an e-commerce practice consultant working to improve teams and structures inside brands and businesses to drive growth. He specializes in helping businesses find the right solutions to meet their D2C needs and help integrate software into their existing structures. He works with fellow consultants at Chameleon Collective. Prior to consulting, Gary spent 25 years working at household global brands, most recently serving as global vice president of direct consumer for Nixon Inc. We touch on how the e-commerce landscape has changed in the last 20 years, what the modern DDC playbook looks like, how the Chameleon Collective are disrupting the traditional consultancy model, the challenges of platform selection, why brands need to think about multi-channel strategies, and how crypto can be used for a good cause. Before we get into it, quick word from my sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Clavio, Clavio, the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. Whether you're launching your e-commerce business or taking your brand to the next level, Clavio gives you the tools to get growing faster. That's why it's trusted by over 30,000 e-commerce brands. Build your contact list, send emails that pop, and create marketing moments that build valuable customer relationships over any distance. Get started for free today. Visit clavio.com slash your basket is empty to create your free account. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash your basket is empty. Enjoy the episode. Hey folks, welcome to the pod. On this episode, I'm sitting down with Gary Penn. Gary, it's a pleasure to have you here. How are you and where are you? Well, thank you for having me on. I am very well this morning. I'm in Encinitas, California, which is in San Diego. It is ridiculously hot here, but I think the whole planet is kind of suffering from ridiculously hot these days. So I can't complain. Yeah. It's, that, at least it's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so um, when we were trying to set up this call, um, I think I may have misread the time zones originally. And then I had to, I had to Google because I can't remember when I tried to figure out where you were. It was coming up with something else, something, uh. something else, Encinita or something else. And it was taking me not where you were, but then I figured out you're in, yeah, in San Diego. So my, I got family in um, Palos Verdes, which is not far. Okay. Away. Yeah. Not yeah, too far. Yeah. A yeah. couple hours north. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Another beautiful yeah, area of the world. Oh, dude. I mean, that whole coastline, I mean, where you are is just insane. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, hot, similarly to London more recently. Hot. Bit of a heat And wave. you would think that living on the coast, we're, it's supposed to be cool. It's supposed to be temperate from the ocean. And Normally, you know, San Diego is renowned for its 79 Fahrenheit all year. And right at the moment is anything but. It is, it is warm. Um, so uh, we might get to the weather in a bit, but we're, we're going to crack on with a bit of history and get into yeah, your background as a starting point. So certainly uh, it struck me that you've worked from some, with some pretty heavy hitters. So, uh, you know, not least Nixon, but Shimano, Quicksilver, I'm keen to understand like just a little bit about that journey and what have been some of the experiences working such, you know, big and well-known brands. I started my career out of college at a university. I was working in IT. And as everybody that listens to this podcast knows, IT is not the profit center. It is a cost center. And it took me maybe five 
years in IT to really cut my teeth. I got all kinds of certifications. I started to get into network administration. And as I was doing that, the direct-to-consumer internet presence for brands was starting to grow uh, to an area of significance that there were positions being formulated and teams being formed around not just not just the web team, mm-hmm. but the the web team that handled commerce. So when I got to Shimano, I had this really amazing opportunity. I was the second person on what they called W3, which was the Japanese term for the, the web team, right? Dub, dub, dub. Nice. And we formed B2B for the globe, wow. which at the time was really cutting edge. We were using brand new dot-com bleeding edge software, a global infrastructure, a global CMS. Yep. And we were, Shimano created a policy that all of the dealers had to start using B2B to purchase. So it grew very, very quickly because Shimano has a very large presence in the cycling and fishing and yeah, even the totally. golf community. Yeah, yeah. So I cycle, so, so I, know, I, I know Shimano very well. Yeah, definitely in terms of the cycling derailers and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I had this unique opportunity to travel the globe, learn international business, work on direct commerce. It wasn't B2C at the time, that was that was B2B. And learn a ton. And I took that into my next job where I was working for Quicksilver, and that became a B2C opportunity with some amazingly strong B2C resources who are still out there as leaders uh, throughout the world, actually. They're, they're now spread out. There, we have some folks in Europe. We have some folks um, in Australia, people that... I've known for a really long time that are great friends of mine. And over the course of time, um, learned what I needed to learn. It took a while. It took, gosh, I, I, the run at Quicksilver was seven years. Mm-hmm. But during the course of that seven years, I owned the PMO. I was the program manager. I went through six website replatforms. Roxy clicks over in DC shoes and then Roxy nice. clicks, clicks over in DC shoes a second time. Nice. Uh, I ran the development team. I got to understand how digital marketing works. I wasn't running it, but I learned from one of the best. So it was just a unique opportunity. I think that was a unique point in time. It's not that you can't do that if you're new to B2C now. Obviously, the right opportunity will lend itself to fantastic experiences and on-the-job education. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to repeat the past like that. I and mean, I think it was just really fortuitous and led me into the next couple global brands. I also think it was fortuitous that early in my career, I was focused on global. Mm-hmm. It's hard to make a conscious decision to do that. I think if you're 25 years old and you get a great job offer at a brand, you go to the brand, you're not thinking about, oh, are they global or not global? I'm not going to take the job. It was just luck. And that has led me to be able to understand international business, 
understand the needs of international websites or international commerce, although I'm far from an expert. I mean, there are folks who just specialize in international commerce. Yeah, of course, of course, yeah. Um, and that, you know, that's led to the rest of my career, which is now, after 25 years brand side, I made the transition to being an independent consultant to help brands, businesses drive their e-com practice and using some of that technology background, being able to integrate into new platforms or software enhancements or things that drive a lot of people crazy. But for some reason, <laughs> just based on how I grew up in the industry, it's just second nature to me. So yeah. I'm, I'm happy to help with those things. Yeah, nice. And I suppose, so, so it was, yeah, independent consultant. And then you've, you've made your way to the Chameleon Collective. So yes. How did you end up there? So from, was, was it a natural kind of transition from that kind of like independent world? And I suppose I'd be keen to understand what, what is the Chameleon Collective, if you were to describe it to somebody. Yeah, so Chameleon's called a collective because it's a group of independents and all of us support each other. We have a common infrastructure that we work off. We have common mm -hmm. billing and invoicing systems, things like that, that help us run our own independent businesses. But really, we're a team like any other. And because there's over 100 consultants in the collective, we can then form teams within organizations. And that allows the half of the company that is in interim, interim leadership positions to come into situations where, hey, you're going to need to shore up this team with a subject matter expert in yep. fill in the blank. You need an affiliate expert. You need a paid search expert. You need a UX UI designer. We can pull from the other half of the organization that's all SMEs. And if you combine those two halves together, you get a super strong team of experts in their field coming together to parachute in, solve a problem, and then lo and behold, exit. Our intention as a collective is to come in, solve a problem and leave. We do yep. not want to be the permanent agency of record. We're not trying yep. to cling on to every last opportunity. And that's what makes our value proposition unique versus your classic digital agency yeah i mean it's so interesting it's definitely the flavor i got from when i was checking you guys out so i'm curious to just explore a little bit more detail um how does it work from like a new business perspective like are you guys responsible for bringing your your own deals or do you rely on do you have like or is it a mixture of both you can bring your own stuff to the table or does the community collective have their own kind of like uh, growth engine that brings in sort of like business then and it gets divvied up across the the consultants and how does that work is it first come first serve or is it like obviously domain expertise would would be into it at some point yeah it's a mixture of both for sure there is certainly a good chunk of possibilities that come from uh, just working within the biz dev team of the collective um, for instance, I'm on a project right now that the collective brought in. I took that role. I thought it was a great role for me. A lot of it is about matching what the collective has open at that point in time and what the particular consultants have available or desire. If you can match those two things together, it's great. In addition to that, if a lot of the consultants bring in business and because we're a team, Let's suppose that there's half a dozen consultants that are 
running an interim leadership or e-com practice of some kind. So I have many colleagues out there. Many of them have been in this field much longer than I have on an independent consultant level. So they get lots of contacts, they get lots of business, and they're too busy. You can only work so much. Yep. So they'll yep. be able to hand that work over to other folks that are in the same field or maybe look for somebody in the same field in the same vertical yep. or yep. with a specific skill set. I was talking to a gentleman last night and I it was actually the first time I'd met him in the collective because I'm still trying to get around and meet all the people. Yep. And he had an opportunity that was fairly technical and had to do with platforms. And so I said the magic word that I work a lot in, in platform or replatforming for businesses. And he said, oh, I should introduce you to so-and-so. And that's how a lot of work gets around or gets done. And you combine that with a little bit of internal biz dev and we're, we're busy. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a really novel model. I've seen different versions of it before. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would love to learn a little bit more, but we could probably take that offline. I'm keen to um, discuss a little bit more about your experience, but also kind of like what you're working on at, at Chameleon Collective. So you've obviously come from, you know, relatively, I mean, I don't know how you describe it. I'm from the Shopify world. So to me, Shimano, mm -hmm. Nixon feel quite enterprise <laughs> compared to, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, pure play or uh, digitally native brands. But what are you kind of working on at the moment? Um, what are you seeing at, at Chameleon Collective? Are you working with smaller brands, working with bigger brands, mid-sized brands? And kind of maybe what I, are you doing with them? Yeah, it depends on the consultant. So the collective in general works with with brands of all sizes. I think it there are those working for startups. It certainly comes through the biz dev channel occasionally. We'll get startups that come in. It is challenging to work with independent consultants. A lot of times as a startup, you only need one or two channels of marketing, and it might be yep. easier to either hire somebody to handle just your paid search or yep. hire somebody to do SEO that knows paid search, right? It's, you start small. We tend to work with businesses that are a little bit larger. However, within that, there are folks working on multi-billion dollar public companies. And there's folks that are working in, in the sweet spot for me, which is a, basically a 25 to $200 million online business. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Uh, when I first came on, I actually started working on a, a deal that was a billion dollar online business. So it doesn't preclude you from working on something else. But I think when you get out of the brand world, you're used to a certain size that you've been working in. And it, that's your comfort zone. I think it's important to push yourself slightly out of the comfort zone, but yep. you don't want to put yourself on Mars. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I'm I'm keen. You, you you talked about the some of your expertise is in kind of replatforming, and I assume that you probably do a little bit of maybe tech selection and so forth for some of the, the either clients you have been working with or working with now. I'm keen to understand going back to the start of the conversation. What's your general take on kind of like platforms, general ecom tech back in the day, uh, Shimano and, and and further on, and compared to now? Like what what's your kind of thoughts? Like it. it was it much easier then because the, the the choices were maybe not as many? Is it more difficult now because there is a plethora of choices and it's hard to differentiate some of the kind of platforms? Like how do you kind of like assess the market then and now? Greatly flawed then and greatly flawed now. How about, <laughs> how about that? Hey, <laughs> I'll it, take it. I'll it take is it. Definite, it's definitely changed. Obviously, the market has matured. 
but it makes you when you look at the look at the Gartner upper right quadrant. That's why as a as an ecom leader, that's why I always start. Yep. Yep. And that's where I tend to roll around in terms of suggestions and when I'm putting out an RFP or if I've already chosen a platform because a business has a particular direction they're going down. It's fairly easy to whittle down to two or three platforms that a business would use based on yep. a certain size. I think where it gets complicated and where there's flaws is where there have always been flaws, which is, hey, this is a small business. Great. Okay, Shopify. But they might be highly global. Yes. All right. Shopify markets and international Mm -hmm. maybe depends on if they're, are they multi-site? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about sharing content? Well, they don't have money for a CMS. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> Adobe Commerce has a CMS built in. Yep. Maybe we go that route. Maybe we go big commerce. So I yep. think it, it the, the the challenges are the same as they were 15 years ago, but the software and the market is significantly more mature. Yep. Uh the obviously the the hosted models of the past, the GSI commerce, that kind of thing. That stuff is still out there. You just have to piecemeal it together a little bit more. It's not, there's not as much spoon feeding. I think the closest thing is something like a Shopify, but then you're limited by you're being spoon fed by Shopify. There's a certain amount that you can do without getting into high levels of customization. Yeah. So all of the capability is, I think, has been out there, continues to be out there. It's getting better. It's far from perfect. Uh, and following on from that, uh, and I think that what the, the point you made there about, I always found an easy way to look at a brand and try and match the platform is GMV, right? Like it's an easy binary number to use to say like, okay, they're X, so they need this. But it really is about that business, right? And their complexity, right? So you could have a very low, well, not low, but like a lower GMV business incredibly complex <laughs> in-store, offline, international, you know, and you look at the GMV number and you go, yeah, that's a Shopify brand for sure. And then you look at something that is like huge GMV, but it's an incredibly simple product and they've only got maybe one or two markets. And, you know, it, it, it means that something like a Shopify is a, is a much better fit. So yeah, I, I definitely hear that. I'm curious though, like in terms of the kind of like general tech landscape, maybe even like headless what your thoughts on that is there anything that you're particularly excited about or you particularly like working with or yeah what what's your thoughts on the i suppose not necessarily that headless is the future because it's been around for a while but it's definitely gained traction and it's in a lot of conversations like what are you thinking about there the i, I started a platform consolidation this week actually for a mid-sized business and they already had a platform, so they hadn't looked at headless. And I, the last time I had done a re-platform was when I was leading Nixon. And we moved from Salesforce's old architecture to Shopify, mm-hmm. which was risky because Nixon's a very complex global business. And at the time, that was 2020 when we made that selection through a RFP process. And at the time, Headless was, uh, it's not quite mature enough. And the Nixon business, despite having a strong internal dev team, which is rare for a mid-sized business, 
was not ready to take on headless. And I'm really glad that we didn't because there was already a ton of complexity in the project. So fast forward, if I was thinking about this recently, if if the business that I'm working on right now had to go through the process, would they take on headless? No way in hell. They're not, they have no internal dev team. They have no capacity to yep. understand microservices architecture. Yep. Mock is the speed that the plane goes at, not, <laughs> not uh, an acronym. Exactly. Or you start have, dropping Mock into the conversation. They think yeah, you're talking about aviation. It's not going to go yeah. well. No, I get it. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, not going to yeah, go yeah. well. So I think, <laughs> I think I'm personally, I'm super excited about Headless. Uh, the, the project that I was talking about earlier with the larger company, that was perfect project for Headless. It, they were looking at some of these older behemoth systems, mm-hmm. IBM WebSphere, ATG mm-hmm. Commerce, things that, that I worked on once upon a time. We ran ATG at Quicksilver. And they want to get off it. They're, they're done with the mega model. They want a more flexible microservices architecture. And Headless offers that. And they have a big enough dev team to support that. It, it's not that you need a giant dev team, but it certainly doesn't hurt. I think what's fun about it and what I learned through the process of that pitch is the you don't have to go all at once. You can stepwise into a headless architecture, which is something that's not available with any other platform. Any other mm-hmm. platform, it's a yeah. lift and shift. You literally yep. rip it out yep. and put in something new and there's huge risk and Headless very painfully is the first thing, rip it out. <laughs> yeah, it's very painful. It's very painful. So you, headless is the first architecture that I've seen where, wow, you're really able to reduce risk. And yet there's so much inherent risk because it is complicated with a lot of moving pieces because by definition, yep. you're choosing each service and therefore it's best of breed. You're not, it's the, literally the opposite of what GSI gave us back in the day. Yep. So it, it's, it, it's with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> you have to be careful what you wish for. And I, it's not for everybody, but personally, as a, as a platform consultant, that it excites me. I think it's great. Yeah, yeah totally. No, I, t- I totally agree. I think like it, it just adds, adds a lot of, potential complexity and like with most things right is it right for the business have they got an internal tech team do they understand how it's going to work you know are they comfortable with things like agile all that sort of stuff you know like it's it's really about the the business but the 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 possibilities are yeah really really interesting i'm keen to sort of touch on uh we talked about the kind of differences in general platforms you know then and now i'm curious about how brands kind of operate and like, have you seen any like distinct differences between the kind of digital playbook or the DDC playbook? Like, how did that look? Maybe you know, you know, at Nixon compared to some of the stuff that you're looking on now. Have there been major differences? Obviously, between now and then, things have gotten different, right? <laughs> like in terms of the way in which you acquire customers and retention is a much bigger thing than maybe what it once was. Like, how do you see it? What have been some interesting insights from a from a change of the DDC playbook? I mean, I think there's a variety of different things that are going on in D2C just in general. Um, I mean, the, the the first is that there's B2C and there's B2B. And 
for a while, it was this. It was one direction, and for a while, it was the other direction. Yep. Has it vacillated over time, back and forth, and back and forth? And I think what's finally coming out the other side because it, it when it vacillates, it it could be eighteen months, two years. You go through these waves in B two C where the hip trend is the hip trend, and the buzzword is the buzzword. Yep. And for a while, <laughs> it was all B2C all the time. I've, I've worked for multiple brands during all this, all this vacillation and the leaders jump on the bandwagon of what's hot and what's hot is high margins and Facebook and look what we can do. And yes, it, for, for a time, but everything is cyclical. So what I believe has happened is the wholesale businesses, the whole concept of retail is dead, has proved false. Mm -hmm. Retail is actually back in a growth mode. Mm -hmm. And post-COVID, especially in the first months of 22, we saw a very strong resurgence in retail. Yeah, And I believe that for a brand, let's suppose that you're in 500 retail stores nationwide, just in the USA. What is that advertising worth? There's no advertising dollars around. That. That's yeah, free yeah, yeah. advertising for your yeah. brand. Every time somebody walks into one of those 500 locations, if you can have a good presence, that's free advertising. So I think we're getting back to a balance where brands are recognizing the value of, yes, to some degree, having their own retail fleet, although that is fraught with risk. Yep. I, I think a lot of brands are recognizing the value of being in store and having a display in store. And what is that sales rep worth who manages those accounts and makes sure that those displays show up well for the brand every single day of the year. Mm -hmm. That alone is a shift it, that is running in parallel with the shift of digital marketing, which for a long time became, I, I think we all got lazy. And we all saw the cash register of Facebook. And then when iOS 14, 15 <laughs> threw everything off, everybody was a little bit caught with their pants down and yeah. didn't really understand that it's not that it's not that Facebook is dead. There's still a very healthy advertising, but yep. You know, Mark Zuckerberg wakes up with heartburn every morning because things have changed. I mean, he <laughs> said so in a recent article, like he has a stressful job. So, you know, it's hard to be a billionaire. <laughs> I was so, going to say, I don't have much sympathy for him, but I get yeah, what say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the concept is, you know, hey, uh, this isn't working quite like it used to. Yeah. And I think what that has forced e-com experts, leaders, digital marketers to go out and do is focus now more on the buzzwords of today, right? So what are the buzzwords of 22? First party data, zero party yeah, data. Yeah. What are you <laughs> doing bit. for your CRM solution? Yeah, yeah. I, will, what, I think the first question that people aren't asking is, what is C, what are you talking about? What's CRM? What do you consider yeah. CRM? Is it email? Yep. Is it yep. SMS? Yep. Is it a C, do you have a CDP solution? How yeah, many mid-sized yeah. brands have a CDP solution? Yeah. And if you do, 
Are you actually using it? Have you segmented anything? Do you yep. know your segments? Do you know your yep. personas? Are you talking to them differently? Yep. Are you personal? I mean, you could go on and on and on. Yep. Yep. So there's these buzzwords out there, but buzzwords form because something's happening, usually yep. bubbling under the surface. Yep. And I think that shift is happening in parallel with a wholesale, I don't know if it's a resurgence, but a strength in wholesale parallel with know your customer and talk to your customer. Yeah. That seems to be the brand of today. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it, it's so interesting. You say that it, it does feel, I, I, I mean, perspective and hindsight are easy, right? So like now it's kind of easier to think, how could we not think that people were not going to have this uh, explosion of wanting to get out of their house and go to a real mm. thing. Right. So I think two years ago, cause everything was so different or three years ago, and so many companies, Shopify being one of them, bet that the fact that people were never going to go back to a store, right? Mm -hmm. Like it mm -hmm. just, it, online e-commerce is just going to continue to grow at the rate it did in that 10-year period that we had in two years. It's just going to, you know, the, 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 it's going to continue on that trajectory. But it does seem slightly how someone in the room mustn't have said, hang on, the, the people are going to go back. Like, you know, we're, 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 you know, tribal social beings, right? So that's one thing. But I suppose another thing I was interested in, it kind of touches on, some of the things you're talking about, I was talking about with this with someone. I was talking about this um, with someone the other day, and that is like, is pure play direct consumer not a thing anymore? Because it does feel to me like mm. it's a starting point, and if you need to be successful, whether that's you've got some crazy VC funding or that's another topic, whatever, like an all birds type scenario, you, you kind of have to be omni-channel, right? For some of those reasons you talked about, how do you kind of think about that, like? I don't know if we need to be so as, as D2C It's said, a super good like... question. Yeah. It's a super good question. Uh, you brought up the Allbirds example. Go go back in time, Warby Parker, right? Classic mm -hmm. pure play that early on had the controversial move of opening stores. Right? Tom, I think Tom's even started as they were wholesale B2C, but they didn't own their own fleet. So there's a lot of shift that methodology seems to work. Uh, I think it, for a lot of pure plays, it works out better than opening up a wholesale business because they might not have the margins to support it or the business structure doesn't support a wholesale business, but it will support the alternate channel of D to C, which is retail. Yep. So I think is, is pure play dead. I think it'd be, I think it'd be tough to declare it dead. I'm sure that there will be successful pure plays that come up over time. And if you're selling services, I think you end up with the same concept as selling goods in a pop-up. Let, let me let me define that. Right. So I'm uh I've been talking to, not a client yet, but I've been talking to a a very small startup brand, apparel brand. And uh awesome company, um female led founder, super strong leader. She spends a lot of her time at pop-up events. Introducing the brand to people, 
using Shopify POS, selling product mm-hmm. right there on the spot. Um, it actually drives a significant amount of revenue, but it's not scalable. Mm. So you need both, right? You need both. So there's an e-com presence, but hey, how do we drive the e-com presence but not lose that? Now, take something like Spotify. Right? <laughs> Spotify isn't going to sell. They're not selling a physical product that yep. you can have a pop-up at events. But they show up as sponsors everywhere. They show up at events. I yep. guarantee they have an entire staff of event people that work on a physical level, either sponsoring festivals or showing yep. up at beach parties or whatever is going on with Spotify. I don't yeah. know what they sponsor. Yeah. Yeah. Just surmising <laughs> all, here. All, all of the above, I'm sure. Yeah. All of the above, right? There's lots of money flowing through there. And that's not, I'm not even sure that they're making profit that's of significance. But it's, but it's there. There is a team that's there and it's driving physical presence. So I think even those selling digital services at this point see the need for physical presence. And I'm not just talking title sponsor banner. I'm talking yeah. you have, you're showing up and you're talking to people. Um, I want to switch gears slightly. So and I, I think... Correct me if I'm wrong. You're on the board of Petcoin. Is that is that right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. Tell me more about it. And I suppose <laughs> we haven't uh we probably haven't got enough of a podcast to explore it in great detail, but <laughs> web three, like what what's your general take on that? And then maybe it's you know application to some of the stuff that you, you you're doing and maybe more of the e-com world in, in general. I'm curious. So I'll I'll tackle Petcoin first. Petcoin is crypto with a cause, which I think is an amazing idea. And Petcoin was founded on the idea that if we're going to trade crypto and crypto is the future of currency, which it very well may be, at least I think it's safe to say it's probably one of the futures of currency. I don't think cash and credit cards are going anywhere anytime soon. Mm -hmm. But there's something beautiful about the blockchain and being able to record transactions on a ledger. If you're going to do that, wouldn't it be awesome to be able to have money go to service a nonprofit, in this case, dogs and cats. So helping dog and cat shelters every time the crypto exchanges hands. So a percentile goes to fund. Now, the beauty of that is that not only does money go to a worthy cause, as opposed to just funding itself, it just, oh, it's just funding Ethereum, it's just funding Bitcoin, it's just driving bankers. Yeah, yeah, but can't we do something better than that? Can't we do something <laughs> that actually helps society? Yeah. So that's that's the premise of Petcoin. Now, in addition to that, the fact that it's on the blockchain means that when you're contributing with Petcoin to a to the nonprofit itself, it is completely traceable. It's 100% yep. traceable money. So you don't have to worry about, hey, well, is the I don't know. Is the Humane Society using my money the right way? Is yeah, Nature Conservancy using my money yeah, the right interesting. way? Yeah, are, yeah, they fr- yeah. are they funding their own, you know, are they funding a rocket ship <laughs> to go put, you know, llamas on the moon? Or yeah. are they, you just don't know. So this way it's traceable money. Um, and I really believe it's a great idea. And I, I believe in, in the cause. The In terms of your question about Web3, it's very immature. 
Uh, I think people got really over their skis mm -hmm. in trying to adopt really quickly. And everybody was really excited about crypto because people love to make billions of dollars. Yep. And then it's hit some rough patches. I, I don't <laughs> think it's going anywhere. Um, I think AR has super strong applications in real world life out in the market. I think yep. Apple and Google and Facebook will probably transform that over the course of time yep. um, pretty rapidly. Uh, and I believe that from a, from a consumer or retail perspective, Web3 offers the concept of authenticity. And there's something about uniqueness and authenticity that is really, really awesome in the market. How to make that come to life becomes the challenge. But I think there's something about, hey, you have this one-of-a-kind unique item. How do I make sure that it is truly one-of-a-kind, truly mm -hmm. unique? Mm -hmm. And to do, it doesn't have to be complex to do that, but I believe that it needs to start with something as simple as that to get way beyond that, which is where kind of Web3 goes and all of the the nonsense that goes with it. I mean, there's a ton <laughs> of stuff that goes with that. Yeah. But yeah. that that overall, to me, that overall methodology of just starting with something that is unique. Okay. How do I make sure that the uniqueness is carried through, not just so that I have a piece of paper that I can stick in a safe deposit box and, okay, I put it in my home safe, something burns, it disappears. What if it's permanently on a ledger somewhere? What if I know? Or what if I have an NFT that when I go to sell this item 15 years later on mm -hmm. eBay, mm -hmm. I can transfer that NFT with the item so that the buyer knows, wow, yeah, I see that that's the right item, but I know that it's not counterfeit. Yep. I could see the engraving on the item, but I also have a digital certificate. Yep. Yep. I yep. think that there's legs in that concept. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it feels like it's too big now for it to fall away, right? There's just too much money and too much stuff in it. But yeah, I think that the yeah, the last six months have have, have shown that it's uh, <laughs> maybe a few too many big bets have been made. <laughs> we'll a lot of big bets goes. and the whole concept that that crypto is not tied to the markets is clearly I mean, look at crypto, look at the markets. It's <laughs> yeah, clearly totally. false. It's not only false, it's it's not even one to one. It's like one to three. The market falls one. Crypto yep. falls three. Yep. So it's 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 terribly backwards and upside down right now. And until there's as much as anybody in crypto would probably cringe at the idea of having some type of federal rules or banking yeah. rules around crypto, yeah. that there does need to be some type of consumer protection out there because it's a mess. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And which is weird though, because then yeah, like you say, that the 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 um the uh, the purists will say that that's like totally against the ethos of it. Right? That, yeah, so, yeah. It's, it's the uh, polar opposite of what the desire. Is, <laughs> exactly. Right? I don't exactly. want a banker involved in my day to day transactions. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. fine. But 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 can we put it in a way that most consumers today think about the the crypto boom started thirty six months ago? Right, was really happening 24, 18 months ago. Yeah. Can anybody? make a wallet no it's still mm. impossible like people yeah. still don't know how to do this stuff yeah. they, they yeah. still 
okay, I can download this MetaMask app. Then what do I do? Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and I need 12 passphrases. How am I going to remember these pass? Yeah. Like, it's just, yeah. it's too much. It's too much for consumers to adopt. And actually, pet, PetCoin and, and companies like PetCoin that are, that are trying to figure out how to get grandma to be able to, to give money to the pet shelter are working on ways to simplify this. That's why these companies are out there to try to get to the next stage. Cause it's not until we get to the next step that it actually has real consumer adoption. Yeah, totally. I've got to round it out. So where is Gary in five years? Mm, You know, hopefully with, with chameleon, I really enjoy at least my, my first half a year in the consulting space has been, very enjoyable and i like helping businesses with problems i like uh you know i spent 25 years in the hamster wheel of you know three to five years brand three to five years brand three to five years brand and and i had a look i'm i'm extraordinarily grateful for that and i am thrilled with every brand and the way that my career has turned out it's been great um but I like being able to help businesses more rapidly. And that's what is enabled by parachuting in and consulting and trying to fix a problem. So now it's instead of three to five years, it's six to nine months, maybe a year. And then you're working on something else in parallel potentially. And then you're on to the next challenge. And I'm hoping that I can maintain that for quite some time. And we'll see where it goes. I, I, I'm hoping that that's at least a five-year path. But Chameleon's only seven years old, so we'll we'll see how it adapts <laughs> we'll and, yeah, and grows and and shifts over time. Yeah, that's super interesting. I think that's a great way to end the podcast, Gary. Thank you so much for joining me, mate. That was great. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. There you go, folks. Thanks so much for joining me. Before I go, a quick word from my sponsor, Clevio, the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. If you want to learn more, go visit them at clavio.com slash your basket is empty. And as always, if you like the episode, please leave a review, subscribe, download, and tell all your mates to do exactly the same. I'll see you next time. You know what they say about